Today we bring you an interview with Governor Jeb Bush. Governor Bush was the first two-term Republican governor in Florida's history and was a presidential candidate in the 2016 election. He has been a leader on a range of policy issues with a special focus on education and immigration. We are so excited he's with us today to talk about his own political past and our country's policy future. Hello, and thank you for tuning back into Banter. It is a very special 400th episode anniversary edition today, and we can think of no better way to ring in this anniversary than with Governor Bush. I'm Matt Weinstead. That was Max Tui you just heard. And I'm Max Frost. Thank you all for tuning in. We're so excited to be here with you today. So without further ado, here's the interview with Governor Jeb Bush. Governor Haley, thanks for coming in. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Mr. George Will, welcome. Glad to be with you. Arthur Brooks, welcome back. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Ambassador Wolfowitz, pleasure to have you. Nice to be here. Thanks. Miss Peggy Noonan, thank you for coming. Guys, thank you very much for having me. Mr. Bolton, it's an honor for you to be with us today. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. J.D. Vance, welcome. Thank you for having me. Governor Bush, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Happy to be with you guys. So first question. So many Americans admire you, yet you've obviously kept a low profile the last few years. Do you see yourself getting back into politics at some point in the future? No, <laughs> I don't. Do you care to elaborate? <laughs> yeah. No, I don't. I think it's time for a new generation of conservatives to take the stage. Conservatism has been tainted, at least in D.C., and what I believe, the things I believe, the values that I hold dear don't seem applicable as much as they should now. And I think it's time for a 21st century conservative renaissance, and it should be led by people in their 20s and 30s, not people in their 60s. So my role would be to encourage people to be big and bold and to not abandon the basic foundations of what it is to be a conservative, believing in limited government and entrepreneurial capitalism and the Bill of Rights and the things that we hold dear, strong families, strong communities, be on a bottom-up country again. Those are the things that led conservatives to get in positions of governance. And I think it's been squandered with all due respect to the people up here. Well, Governor Bush, you're basically a millennial compared to the current Democratic field of presidential candidates. <laughs> Well, thanks. <laughs> so, yeah, that's really, it just warms my heart to know that. <laughs> I mean, the guy that's the front runner had a heart attack a month ago, and no one seems to think that's a big deal. If he was my father, I'd be concerned. You know, 78-year-old man that had a, I'm not kidding, heart attack and was uh, hasn't released his health records. Now uh, leading in yeah. Iowa. Yeah, we yeah. saw Paul on the way in. He's now leading the Big uh, time. Iowa. 25, yeah. So now, Governor. I'll tell you one thing about, one, one lesson that would be, I think, important for conservatives as well is that the reason why Bernie Sanders may be leading is people know where he stands. Mm -hmm. He's not wandering around. I mean, he's been a socialist since the day he went on his honeymoon to the Soviet Union, literally. I mean, it's been pretty consistent all the way through. And I think there's something to admire. I, I don't agree with anything he believes, but I kind of like politics where it's, you, you know, coming right at you with what you believe and you don't, you don't, you don't vector from it. Yeah. Now, all that being said, from 2016 on, um, all the kind of political shifts we've seen in this country. Have your views changed over time, or are you still pretty much looking at things the same way as 2015, 2016? My views are haven't changed on the big stuff. We need entitlement reform, and there's no one now in Washington that thinks that's important. Budget deficits are disgustingly high in the growing economy. All those things I, I continue to believe. I think some of my views have shifted a little bit as the emergence of China has come onto the stage. I admire the president's challenging China it's appropriate to do so at this time when 
there was a hope maybe 15 years ago that as they grew and as their middle class grew, that what they believed, the values that they espoused, their interconnection with the rest of the world would change, and it really hasn't. So kudos for the president to challenge that. Just as, I mean, it's important not to be static in your thinking because the world changes and you have to adapt to that. Mm-hmm. But do I believe in limited government? Dang right I do. Do, mm-hmm. do I think that a $21 trillion debt is a um, generational gift to people of your age? No, it's a disaster. Uh, when you add up the un- contingent liability of, of the uh, unfunded entitlements of Obamacare, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, the unfunded portion of our retirement system, it's $50 trillion dollars. Yeah. Plus $21 trillion of debt, plus all the student loans that, you know, if, if Warren or Sanders gets selected, they want to write that down. The unfunded portions of Freddie and Fannie. I mean, this is this is the legacy of my generation to yours. And I think young people ought to be marching in the streets to say, get out of the way. We'll, you know, we'll take care of this now because you've destroyed our chance to be successful. Used to be, I think, that conservatives were the ones that would defend uh, fiscal restraint. But now the mm-hmm. way you compromise is... I get what I want, you get what you want, and the compromise is to spend more. Do you think the rise of China should cause a fundamental rethinking in the free trade consensus that both parties have kind of believed in for a while now? No. I, I do believe that free trade should be the consensus, and I, do, and I don't think it is anymore. I think there's a protection sentiment in both parties that's growing. But what I admire about the current administration's challenging of China is that China doesn't believe in free trade. Mm-hmm. And you have to, you know, there could have been other ways of doing this in addition to challenging them as it relates to merchandise trade. You could have, we could have reformed WTO to make it relevant because right now, if you want to make a claim of unfair trade practices in WTO, it takes an act of God for a final solution. I think advancing the uh, TPP would have been another strategy to isolate China, engage actively in concert with our friends and allies to, to challenge this and, and then, you know, and make sure you have the back of Korea and mm-hmm. Japan. There's a lot of things that we could do beyond what the president has done, but kudos for taking this on, the intellectual property challenge, because China is very different than what we expected. Yeah. And so I, I think it's I think it's appropriate. I give him credit for that. Turning back to a domestic issue here though involving other countries more so in our hemisphere is immigration. And you've been a big leader for many years on the immigration debate, especially in the Republican Party. But a lot of Americans, and this has been exposed when we talk about the political trends of the last five years, a lot of Americans do not view immigration the way that you do as an act of love, but instead as a threat to their jobs and their culture. Do you sympathize with this view? I understand the view for sure. And if we have a culture that is, if we have a kind of a belief that multiculturalism is the way forward for our country, their views would be correct. I mean, if you if you want to move to the European model and say, you come with your culture, you don't have to adapt the underlying principles of what it is to be an American, I think that would be an unmitigated disaster. And legal immigration in this country historically has not been that way at all. The contract has been embrace what it is to be an American, understand it and pursue your dreams with a vengeance. And that has led to the greatest entrepreneurial, dynamic, innovative economy the world has ever seen. Immigrants have played a really constructive role in that regard. So if, we're, if we want to compete against China, against the world, where we're the winners, I think we should continue to be an open society where we 
protect our borders, where we have E-Verify for people so that illegal immigrants can't get jobs that take away jobs from law-abiding citizens, where we deal with the largest number of people coming illegally, 60% are the, are every year come with a legal visa and overstay. A great country ought to be able to figure out how to politely ask people to leave in that regard. But then open up the system to bring in young, talented, dynamic people that aren't taking jobs away. They're creating jobs. In America, if you opened up all the borders in the world and said, we get, you get a 30-day look, give you 30 days to think about it, one-way ticket, where would they go? Here. They'd come here. And so why wouldn't we want to select who would come? Mm-hmm. and create an economic, first of all, create a demographic, rebuild the demographic pyramid so that old people like me eventually, you know, will get what we thought we were going to get. <laughs> Not that I'm looking for it, but, you know, there's that. And then create a sustained economic, you know, a driver for economic progress where everybody benefits. Only America could do that. And guys, you know, if you think about this, demography's destiny. So the break-even for population growth is 2.11. Generally, if, if you have that, you're going to have sustained sustained population growth where younger people you know, continue to be the dominant force for the society. If you invert the pyramid by having fewer babies born, no immigrants coming in, mm-hmm. older people staying older longer, you have huge strains. China, with their one-child policy, now has a demographic time bomb that I don't think people fully appreciate. Japan? Japan is, is in a de- declining population already. Korea has a birth rate that is close to one, which is obviously one half of what they need. And those countries have a hard time with an immigration policy that has been historically ours. They can't just open up their country to the people striving for a brighter future because their citizenship is a racial identifier. Mm. Whether it's in China with great you know, minority populations, Japan, the racial identifiers being Japanese, Korean, the same thing. In Europe, they have a multicultural approach, so they allow people to come in, but they're really not German. They're really not French. Yeah. Only America could get this right. So I think it is important for us to embrace this, and conservatives should lead the way because our policies would be ones that create economic prosperity and would be fair to all. By ignoring the debate and becoming nativist, at least in the messaging we send, we send a pretty bad signal politically, but we also are missing taking, you know, missing the opportunity for economic progress. So, well, speaking of kind of the European approach and assimilation, how do you think the city of Miami has done, given what you spent so much time there? A lot of people view I it. There. I live there. Yeah. I've spent a lot of time there. Well, <laughs> I wish I could spend more. Um, but, you know, a lot of people would say it's a Spanish-speaking metropolis, so interesting and exciting. Other people would say it's a place where they can't use their native language to order in a restaurant. Oh, um, they can. If they can't, they should come with me and I'll help them out. <laughs> Look, 60% of the people in Miami uh, are born in another country. That's unique. You know, Miami being Miami-Dade County, so one, what, 2.8 million people, I think, something like that. It is, it is a dynamic international city. People in our country, thankfully, live where they want to. People move to Broward County, Fort Lauderdale, or they, they stay, they adjust. But Miami is an incredibly dynamic place. It's very prosperous. A lot of people love the dynamic nature. Others don't. But that's part of America. You know, this monolithic white bread kind of everybody has to eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for breakfast or lunch or something. That's not America. America, here, here's the key. The key is what are the set of shared values that this incredibly diverse group of people have? How do we show our love of country? In Miami, 
People do it the same way people in Des Moines, Iowa do. They volunteer to help their fellow man. They attend churches. They enlist in the armed forces. They vote. They do the things that Americans, we want Americans to do. And it's a pretty successful place. So come and visit. Super Bowl's coming up. I think the, I, I can almost promise you can you can order a hamburger in English. Who do you <laughs> who do you think's going to win by the way? The 49ers or the Chiefs? I kind of like the Chiefs to win. I'm not sure they will, but I like the Chiefs just because of the 50-year Pretty right. cool. I mean, like you can't make it up. Right. Yeah, I guess. So, <laughs> I guess you're a 49er fan. I'm a, well, I'm a Patriot fan, but oh, but Jimmy get G, over it. Jimmy G is still in my heart. You so don't, be, don't be so like <laughs> I hate you know Patriots fans. You, you hate Patriots fans because they're they're so snotty. I mean, like exactly. they they keep winning Super Bowls and they they're really disappointed and they hate everybody else. Oh, and, and, you know, when they don't immigrants do aren't the problem in this country, people. It's the Patriots. I, I'm, a, I'm a Dolphin fan, so you got to. I'm, I'm in therapy. Uh, well, so Governor, in addition uh, to the um, the cultural and the economic questions revolving immigration, a lot of Republicans also see it just as a political issue where they don't think immigrants will are going to vote for Republicans. I think you, I believe you were the first Republican governor reelected in Florida, obviously in a very diverse state. How did you go about? Broadening the year, fifty-six percent of the vote, I believe. Yeah, yeah so I, I got a majority of the Democratic Hispanic vote when I when I ran for re-election, and I'd say I did it because I campaigned with my arms open rather than scolding people. Mm. I mean, it, I don't quite get how angry, particularly older, angry white people, you know, me, me, angry white males, yeah. you know, scolding people all the time is a winning message in a country that is changing demographically. A better way is to advance the cause of limited government and conservative principles, the values that many Hispanics share, whether they're more liberal than I was or not. They, they like the fact that I was, that I cared about everybody. I tried to care about everybody. I appointed Hispanics to positions of leadership, tried to build uh, an education system where, where people weren't left behind. I, I worked hard to, to be able to send a positive signal. It's like if you were a salesman, you're going door to door and you wanted to sell whatever, mm-hmm. which I did when I was 15 years old. It was cleaning detergent. It was like, the, it was a tough, tough <laughs> job. Did you make a lot of customers happy with that? I did. Clothes cleaned? It's hard. But what, <laughs> the, the point I was trying to make, off I've got onto a tangent here, is you have to make the sale. The first thing you do is you don't insult people. Mm-hmm. You don't like go and say... I want your vote, but you can't be on my team. You know, the idea that somehow we scold our way to victory is really not the right approach. So I, my brother did the same thing in Texas. I was successful. And little by little, Florida's still kind of a safe haven for this. Uh, Ron DeSantis has done a good job. Governor Scott worked really hard, for example. He spent more time when, in, when he ran for the Senate. He, he went to Puerto Rico like six times, seven times, just to show he cared. Instead of saying you know, you guys are horrible. Mm -hmm. He went and said, how can I help? Mm -hmm. And that in life works and it it works in politics as well. And we need to get back to it. One thing that I think our generation sees though, is if you look at the most successful young politicians right now, in terms of name recognition, who's controlling the headlines, it's AOC on the left, Ilan Omar on the left, and then maybe Dan Crenshaw. A lot of people who are more about, less about, you know, the unifying, yeah. sympathetic approach and more about who can have the best clapbacks on Twitter, who can go on the best rants, introduce the most partisan legislation to... Yeah, let's just base. shut down AEI then, you know? <laughs> I mean, the point being, yeah, can you can you be popular in the yeah. here and now and kind of it's like empty calories that go into the vapor until the next time you rant on Twitter? 
I'm sure that I'm sure that works. I love that empty calories. It is empty. That is, yeah. It ends in, but yeah. but don't we believe in things? Don't we have a set of values that we share as Americans? Don't we want to advance the cause that in this incredible building, you know, great ideas come from these foundational beliefs? I believe that's still important, and people have to advance those ideas over the long haul, or our democracy will fail. So. I get all the AOC stuff. I kind of like watching and reading, you know, seeing Dan Crenshaw on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that he served his country with incredible Absolutely. distinction. All that stuff is great. I, I believe, I think, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think he would agree that at some point we need to start balancing the budget. At some point we need to make sure that every kid has a chance to get a quality education. At some point we need to push power back to our communities and back to states rather than just ranting on, on Twitter about how bad the other side is. So, well, this is another thing that we talk about a lot here, we've talked about on the show before, too, is to what extent should politicians be taking their cues from the people below them versus setting the standards and trying to get the people behind them? I'm sure this yeah, is a line you... I'm more of the second kind of approach. I think you have to persuade people what you believe. You have to listen to them and be sensitive to them. I mean, I can remember times where in town hall meetings as a candidate or as governor, I would advance whatever I believed, and someone would say something to me that kind of challenged me and made me adjust my thinking. I think that's okay. Mm -hmm. But if you're just going to reflect the emotions of the here and now, then you're in trouble because the next day someone's emotions are going to change. I mean, emotions change all the time. Timeless principles don't. And so it would be really hard to be in public life where you're always trying to figure out what people want, they want to hear, because you're going to mess up at some point. You know, you can't. It's a lot simpler if you say, I believe in limited government, I believe in strong families, strong communities, I believe in private property rights, I believe in entrepreneurial capitalism, and there are ideas that emanate from that to be able to create a more prosperous world. Yeah. Instead of saying, well, this guy's mad at me because, you know, the government isn't doing this. Oh, I understand. Yeah, maybe we should be spending more money. That just... Yeah. That leads to a dead end. This reminds me of a story that Jonah Goldberg always tells on a rival podcast, not to be mentioned, about how Williams, Jennings, Bryan, <laughs> he said, oh, the people are for free silver, so I'm for free silver. And that, that's not leading. That's just finding a stampede then running in front of it. And- Yours, uh, this, you guys wouldn't have seen this movie either. We were talking about movies before we started. And um, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas is a, <laughs> is a movie about a Texas governor. And in the middle of this... This guy starts doing this Texas two-step that basically mm-hmm. describes exactly what you said. He's like, someone's mad, so he kind of dances around and just <laughs> always shucking and jiving and like dancing around to make sure that he gets through the whole thing rather than saying, this is what I believe. I respect your beliefs, but you have to respect mine too. And a little more of that probably be helpful. Yeah. Well, so one thing I've always wondered is you obviously came from a, from a Republican family, but how, how did you form? How do you know that? Uh, Wikipedia, I think. <laughs> a lot of information comes from there. How did you form your own political beliefs? Were there any formative thinkers or events that really shaped how you think of issues? Yeah, but let me tell you about Wikipedia first because it's a great story. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm at the Rotary Club in, in Nashua, New Hampshire, running for president. And this guy gets up and says, you know, I always go to Wikipedia when I have to introduce somebody to see if I have something in common with, my, with the guest speaker. And believe it or not, I do. The, our, current, our, our next speaker is, you know, you know he did all these things, he was governor and all that, but the interesting thing was he, he's an avid rock climber and had a secret desire to be a Hollywood actor. So I get up and go, dude, 
Yeah, I hate to tell you this, but in Wikipedia, there's a lot of young people that are unemployed with Cheeto stains on their <laughs> on their T-shirts, you know, in their their parents' basement, looking at their Obama posters, and they they play a game to change Wikipedia biographies to see how long they stay in before they're edited. Yeah, and. That's not true. (laughs) In all fairness, you look like a rock climber and a potential movie star. (laughs) So be careful with Wikipedia. Um, The values that I believe in were shaped by my mom and dad, for sure. I mean, those aren't political. Those are, you know, when you're you're born in Midland, Texas, and you wake up and your eyes open up and there's Barbara Bush. It's a lifelong journey of what's right and what's wrong. My views were, were shaped by... Being Secretary of Commerce, well, my views were shaped a lot by Ronald Reagan in the 80s because he, he, he was inspirational to me, not only his ability to articulate a conservative message, but the optimism. Both he and Jack Kemp were kind of my, uh, my not idols, but, yeah. you know. Lodestars. Yeah, I mean, I, I really, and to this day, I still think that optimism and a hopeful message is one that unifies people towards a common objective. So... They certainly they shaped my thinking. I was Secretary of Commerce when in 1987 and 88, and I saw what the the power of being governor was, the missed opportunities and the opportunities that Governor Martinez really did implement. And um, my focus really became I'd like to be governor because it's a great leadership job. Mm-hmm. Being in a collegial body is not not my cup of tea. Yeah. Last area we want to mention is education and another issue you've been very much a vocal leader on not just in talk and policy but in action what we see as recent college grads in the last you know four years two from uva myself from notre dame so not even far left schools how's that how's that student debt going boys it's not great public I mean, school national <laughs> oh you're virginia so in-state you're tuition you're good Oh, these lowly public school kids went to UVA. Sorry, guys. But one thing that we see is is the social justice culture on campus. Yep. And it's really it's really remarkable. And I think it's amazing too how, from my perspective, college administrators have really just sort of bowed down to their the angry mob of students. And you see things like three of the top 100 universities in 2018 invited conservative commencement speakers. Just three out of the top 100. And so when you see that... I'm surprised it was that many. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So w- what are your thoughts? Do you think this is overblown? Do you think it's a real threat? No, I think it's threat? real. I think the narrowing of speech uh, on American campuses is is dangerous for sure. There's a great book about this called The Coddling of the American Mind. Mm-hmm. You should ask Jonathan Haidt to come be on come your... Come on, we should. He we'll is... And his his belief, which I hadn't thought of it this way, but after reading the book, it's pretty compelling, is that there's a cadre of young people that, principally because of digital media, began to isolate, and uh, they were coddled by their parents because we're living in the safest time in modern history, but yet parents perceive that the, the world we're living in to be incredibly dangerous. So these young people lose their resiliency, lose the ability to think on their own and act on their own. They they get coddled and then they go to they go to these radicalized left universities where all the professors are, you know, you, if you find a liberal professor you're kind of thank God I found a liberal one because everybody else is ultra left and they continue the coddling and and so speech is narrowed and students, you know, feel threatened by people with a different point of view. So the 
the counter to that I'll give you an example of is I'm a professor of practice at the University of Pennsylvania. And President Gutman, I think, realizing, sensing that this could be a problem for a great university where if you don't control this, you could have, you know, the academy gets gets uh, damaged for right. a long time, mm-hmm. has, you know, allows, wants me to be on campus. I'm the like the token conservative and I speak my mind mm-hmm. and no one's throwing anything at me and no one's saying, I, you know, you're in my safe space. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're, hope she's this trying to is a safe space for you. I feel good. <laughs> I think I think university leaders need to, you know, boards of trustees and mm-hmm. presidents need to make sure that they don't lose control of this. The idea that, and then you know what happens is that you have you have the crazy reaction of the left when a conservative goes on campus, and then the provocateurs on the right kind of come into play. And and normal thought of having engagement where you debate things and you try to find common ground is avoided. So it's always back to this left-right on the Twitter sphere, yelling and screaming at each other rather than trying to engage intellectually. I think this is temporary. I mean, I'm, I'm more comfortable. I'm comforted by the fact that AEI, as an example, is thriving and makes a huge contribution here in D.C. and certainly um, with its efforts to uh, recruit young people towards the conservative cause from a policy point of view is making a difference around the country. I think ultimately that's going to matter. So something that you just mentioned too is uh, student debt, which is, I'd say the two main issues we talk about education are the social justice, you know, lefty kind of stuff, and then student debt. So obviously the debt burden is in the trillions of dollars for student debt. It's an incredibly complex issue, but if you have to place the blame somewhere, if you had to point to one area of the country or policy that we could fix in order to alleviate this debt burden that's really crushing a lot of entrepreneurs. Or one group. Or one group. Yes. Yeah, so student debt has doubled once, once, once it was nationalized by the Obama administration. And it's recourse debt, not, you know, it's recourse debt on the backs of students, and it helps finance non-academic expansions of the academy. So more buildings, more administrators, higher tuition, higher tuition financed by debt is a vicious cycle. And the way you challenge that is to embrace some ideas that have come from places like AEI, mm-hmm. where you put a cap on the amount of debt that uh, a student could have, uh, where you move to an income repayment uh, plan, where people have skin in the game, and where universities are rewarded at the state level, I don't think DC should get involved in this, for greater throughput, if you will. So we measure four-year degree completion rates in public universities by uh, the number of the percentage of students that graduate in six years. So why do we call it a four-year degree for measuring it six years? A kid going to a public university, most of them go to the state college, state you know the commuter schools, the metropolitan universities in this country, should be able to get a four-year degree in less than four years. I mean, it should be a guarantee that if you're getting going to school full-time, and full-time should be 15 credit hours, not 12, because you can't graduate. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, and it and there's many ways you can do that. Online education is part of that. Uh, making sure there's more professors teaching, challenging this notion that the measurement of success of a university is how many people can't get in, but how many people can get in. ASU, Purdue are great examples of first-class universities that have turned the dynamic on its head. Mm-hmm. I'm involved in a business that's providing online capabilities for public universities with an average tuition for graduate programs, MBA, RN to BSN, 
programs, master's in education, the average tuition for graduation is $15,000. Wow. And people are working. Wow. Yeah. And they get an immediate raise by garnering that degree. So there's a lot of answers to this. The answer isn't to continue to raise tuition, continue to place debt on the next generation, continue to not challenge the basic assumptions of how universities operate. Great universities should graduate 90% of their kids. Metropolitan universities that comprise 80% of all the students, they should be much more agile and be given the freedom to be able to create creative new ways of making sure that that young people can graduate from college. All right, rapid fires, ready? What's the better state, Florida or Texas? Florida. Does Eli Manning belong in the Hall of Fame? Yes. Two Super Bowls. Come on. <laughs> and who did he beat? Uh, <laughs> got a little bit of amnesia there. He needs to be in therapy, too. All right. Exactly. All right. Governor Bush, who can do more push-ups, you or your brother? Which brother? The president. That's a good question. I'm, I'm going to see him this afternoon. I'll, I'll find out and get back to you. <laughs> I don't know if either one of us is going to be bre- breaking any world records here. Who's your favorite? Marvin probably could do more. Okay. Who's your favorite comedian? You know, I kind of like, like David Chappelle. Oh, he's the best. Now he's like, I'm, I'm not sure I can, I mean, I'd get in trouble just if someone saw me watching him maybe, but <laughs> he's a little politically incorrect, but he's, he's, he's a genius. Yeah. And he just endorsed Andrew Yang for whatever, for whatever that really? might be worth. Yeah, he, <laughs> he did. did. He did. Well, at least and Yang. Marianne Williamson too. That's a quote. Yeah. I know. And yet MSNBC won't show I'd love that dinner party. <laughs> All the people who've endorsed Yang, including Norm MacDonald, put yeah. him there. All, All right, right. Two more. When you visit Mexico, what is your favorite thing to do there? Favorite thing to do is to eat a Mexican breakfast with chilaquiles. Well, last question here. Within Mexico, where's your favorite place to visit? Mexico City, probably. Although my wife's from Leon, and we've gone back there a couple of times. It's amazing. Uh, when I was there, there was it was a tiny town. Now, the places that I remember fondly because I met my wife there, um, they're all like immersed in this my you know three four million place. So it's kind of a mystery to try to find them. Well, Governor Bush, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, the show. guys. Thank you, Governor Bush, and thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed that interview as much as we did. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have this week, but please continue to leave reviews, comments, emails. We love to hear from you, and it means a lot to us. Thanks again, guys. We'll see you next week.